I apologise for any sort of wrongly pronounced words that I get out today or whatever, because I was eating some cake yesterday afternoon, delicious cake, I might say, and I chewed, I chewed on my tongue. So this side of my tongue is like really fat. So I feel like I'm talking like this. So if I actually do talk like this, then I'm really sorry. <sighs> I'm glad I got that out of the way. Thank you for being an understanding audience. So um, put up your hand if you're a parent and you have more than one child. Oh, this is good. This is good. Um, now leave your hand up. Uh, 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 leave them up. Okay. <laughs> leave your hand up if you would be prepared to tell me which one of your children is your favourite. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm sitting down. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> no, that's great answer, Bevan. Great answer. That is crazy. You all took your hands down so quick. You're just like, you can't do that. That's evil. <laughs> Don't play favourites. Because we know playing favourites is bad, hey? We know it's bad. We know favouritism is not cool. And I'm sure that, like, growing up, if we've had any sort of, like, life experience under our belt, we've felt, like, a good sort of inclusive side of favouritism. Maybe you were, like, a teacher's pet or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe you were an only child. <laughs> yeah. I was going to actually make some joke about Jenny and Chris and, and Merv, but I can't make jokes about my in-laws. You're exactly right. It's never stopped me. Um, but yeah, we've felt this good side of favoritism. And we've also, I'm sure we've all felt the really bad side of favoritism, haven't we? You know, that real, like the rejection feels that you get. Maybe you were like left off a friend's invite, like party invite list. Or maybe you were like the last to be picked at like uh, like in a sporting team, you know, where it's like, oh, pick you, pick you, pick you, pick you, pick you, pick you. You know that? We understand the dark side of favoritism. We understand how painful it can be. We hate it. So we're going to be looking into this dark side of favoritism today um, through our mega series. We're back in this Meeting God Almighty series after having a sort of one week staycation out amongst the uh, Above and Beyond series that Adrian took us on last week, which was great. Last time we were in our mega series, it was actually Adrian preaching as well, and he took us through uh, Jacob. And you know, his, his um, interaction with that godly figure that approaches him out of the darkness on the banks of the Jabbok, and he wrestles him all night. And Adrian brought out the fact that, you know, we, um, we wrestle with God for things that are not good for us, that we should want, that we want. And God wrestles with us back to point him, us back to himself, showing that we really need him to turn us around. So anyway, Rachel, as Rick said, Rachel's our character that we're going to mega through today. So we're going to jump back a few years in time from that hip wrestling, sorry, that hip-popping wrestling match on the banks of the Jabbok, and we're going to um, look at Rachel. So she is the most beautiful, um, if you want to turn to it, you know, it's Genesis 29 and 30. You want to jump in there. Um, She was the most beautiful of Laban's two daughters, Jacob's uncle. That's right. Jacob married not one, but two of his cousins. Times were definitely a little bit different back there, but let's, you know, let's call it for what it was. 
bit strange. But we've got to we've got to weigh this up with the point. Also, lots of actions in the Bible are not condoned by God. All right, there's things that people do, and there's things that God condones, and often they just do not match up. And so, um, it's important for us to make that distinction and to understand that God here is in this mess of these sinful free will creatures that are sort of running them up, doing their own things. But he is above and beyond that in the fact that he sees everything that's going on and he still brings out his ways, out his plans. He brings about what he wants to point these people that are running their own way, to point these people to himself. And as we are here in Genesis, he's in the process of building a family, building a nation, which he's going to bring his son into the world through. And then through his son, then he's going to make a way back to him for all of us. Okay, so that's where we are. So I'm just going to quickly jog through uh, chapter 29. I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to read it through the week. Um, I want you to make sure that what we are like, always read around where the preaching's coming from. Uh, make sure we're on track. Make sure we're online. And if we're not, then hit us up about it. Myself, Adrian, you know, Luke, whoever else, Rick, um, is preaching. Just always keep us accountable. Keep us online. So where are we? In Genesis 29, we've got Jacob. He's coming back to his home country from um, his ancestral sort of familial, like most recent familial sort of family home. And he comes up. He's traveling to Haran or Padanaram, and he comes up to these shepherds, and they're in the field, and there oh, he says to them, hey, guys, I'm searching for this guy called Laban, my uncle Laban, do you know him? Is he still around? Is he still alive and kicking? And they're like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we've heard of Laban. Um, speaking of, here comes his um, daughter, Rachel. And so, then we cut scene, in comes Rachel, she's kind of like wafting in the breeze, it's a bit blurry around her, there's a bit of slow-mo air in her hair, and a little bit of that, whop, 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 whop. no, not, not that. that's, sorry, that's over the top, that's not what the Bible says, that's what's going on in Jacob's mind, because he's really infatuated with her, okay, she is very beautiful, and we see that um, she's made quite an impression on him, she's a shepherdess, um, she's strong, she's able, she's beautiful. And so what does Jacob do? Does he puff his chest out, square up his jaw, and go over and say hello to her? No. He opens the well up, waters her sheep, gives her a hug, and then he cries. It's a pretty emotional journey that he's been on to get back here. So anyway, goes back to Uncle Laban's house. Uncle Laban, Rachel's dad, he's a really interesting kind of shifty kind of character. It's actually really, really interesting to see this dynamic play out between Laban and Jacob. They're both really cunning. They're both fairly sly. It's always this interesting thing trying to see them undercutting and trying to outdo each other, wheeling each other around. And it's, it's quite an interesting play, actually, as it goes. So Laban uh, welcomes Jacob into his home. He says, hey, you know, you're one of us. Um, you can't work here for free. What are your, what are your wages going to be? And Jacob's like, well, kind of had my eye on Rachel. I worked seven years for Rachel. And Laban goes, yeah, fair enough, man. Okay, no worries. Start working. So he works for seven hard years. But with Rachel in the forefront of his mind, all he can think of, they fly by for him. It's like a few days. And then when his seven years are done, he goes to Uncle Laban. He said, look, man, I've got this land back home that I've got to grow my family into. Can I have my wife so we can go now, please? And Laban's like, yeah, sure. Um, let's do a wedding feast. So he, he runs that for Jacob. But then during the night, 
before the business end of the night, or whatever we want to call it. He does the old bride switcheroo. Okay? And Jacob wakes up in the morning, having sealed the deal or consummated the marriage with Leah. Jacob's dumbfounded. It's like, how much did I how much did I drink last night? What is going on here? It's the worst hangover wake up ever. It's just like, what's going, what's going on here? So he goes to Laban. He's like, dude, what have you done to me? You shortchanged me. I, I wanted Rachel, not Leah. And Laban's like, what, what are you talking about, man? You don't understand, dude. Like around here, around here, the oldest always gets married first. What are you talking about? But look, I'll do your deal. I'll do your deal. I'll do your deal. <laughs> Finish this week with uh, Leah. Then you can have Rachel on credit and work another seven years for me. So anyway, Jacob accepts that deal and goes away, works those seven years. Then anyway, we, we pick up our narrative with um, being married to Rachel, Jacob being married to Rachel. Pick up our narrative in verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So if you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, um, then, you know, poor you, because you've probably read a whole lot of Christian literature that displays this story as kind of like this um, uh, beautiful love story that Jacob and, and Rachel, they, tr- they finally get together after triumphing over all these obstacles that are standing in the way of their love. It's all very sort of Nicholas Sparksy kind of storyline. It, and, and while that makes, you know, great head in sand, blinkered romance, devotional kind of material, um, it's not really what's going on here. Because there is a problem in this story. There's a problem. There's a behavioral problem in the lives of the people here that drives conflict and it's caused so much hurt in this family and the parties around this family as it grows. And this problem is that of favoritism. And this problem is that of desiring favoritism. And it's a problem of just treating others differently than who they are. And it's a treating and it's a problem of doing everything you can to hold on to being a favourite, maintaining favourite status. So before we get going into investigating that, I just want to ask you a question to test our understanding of God's nature here. Who did, who did God, God favour the most, Rachel or Leah? Now don't answer that, just hold it in your mind. Don't even tell it to your person beside you or anything. Just compare your answer with what you understand at the end so we can see a bit of a journey of our own thoughts going on. And as we will be looking at Rachel, I want us to um, tether ourselves to her. All right, Let's hold her close as we can. Let's try and get her understanding and her see how her understanding of God changes. So if we're holding ourselves close and putting ourselves in her shoes in the story, that'll help us out, okay? So, from what the Bible tells us of Rachel, it's not a stretch to understand that she is a favourite. She's Laban's favourite daughter. We'll start with Laban, the father. It's not a stretch to understand that, is it? 
because we see here, well, we don't think that, well, we're not told that Laban has any sons, and probably he doesn't, because they would have been out looking after the sheep, I would assume. So it's Rachel and Leah. And this is, out of these two, Rachel's Laban's favourite. She is the beautiful, she is the super attractive one, all but the blindest of dudes around probably knew that. And Laban, being a smart, clued-on kind of dude, he probably recognises that as well. And he's probably like, and as he says, when Jacob comes and asks for her hand, Jacob, he says, well, yeah, you're, you're our flesh and blood. Um, it's better that she marries you than any of these other chumps around. Okay? So he sees her as, this, as, like, um, as the best that he has to offer Jacob and that she's too good for the guys around. But we also know that Rachel's not this sort of... Um, you know, Rapunzel-like princessy kind of stuck in an ivory tower waiting for Prince Charming to sort of sweep in on his white horse, his cheesy green, and save her from boredom, okay? She's not that either. She's out. She's working hard. She's a shepherdess. So she's fierce and capable. Because remember, like, what, like, what does it entail to be a shepherd back in those days? You're out on the road, living out in the elements for ages. You're fighting off wild animals to protect your flock. She's well capable, she's strong, she's fierce. She's all these things. And as many people would say, she's probably the full package. Okay? From looking at her from like a earthly perspective, she's like the full package. Rachel's very naturally blessed and she's pulling her weight, so she's her father's favourite. It doesn't appear like she's got any sort of pet child complex or any sort of misplaced identity in being the favourite initially, okay? But she hasn't been tested yet because that stuff's coming. And then as she goes through her marriage and being pledged then to Jacob for another seven years, I'm sure when she marries Jacob, I'm sure it's then her favourite status of Jacob, that she's the, the favourite of Jacob is then enforced in her mind because it will come out that Jacob has actually worked 14 years for the desire to have Rachel. He hasn't worked one day for the desire to have Leah. Poor Leah. Now that's going to be crushing and Tim's going to take us through Leah uh, next week. But it's, it's clear she's Jacob's favourite too. She, she can understand that. She knows this. So Rachel's well and truly in this favourite position and she knows it. She knows her father values her highly. The other men around probably valued her highly. Jacob values her highly above her sister Leah. So as I said, if we were to get this better understanding of God's character through the story of Rachel, we've got to attach ourselves to her. So... How do we attach ourselves to Rachel in this being the favourite thing? Because you probably, you're not an over and obvious kingpin favourite of, you know, heaps of people in your life, probably. Well, you, well Camille obviously is. <laughs> and modest. <laughs> but, you know, none of us are celebrities here. None of us are, you know, the people that um, anyone sort of person in the street would just fawn over. Okay? We're not obvious standout favourites. But... There are places in our lives where we stake our identity and we value ourselves based on being higher or more important in those areas than people around in our lives. For example, you might earn more money than the guy you're sitting beside and you love that and you're proud of that. You might know more about the Bible than the person you're sitting beside and you love that and you're proud of that. 
you might have a nicer house than the people that you invite around for tea to <coughs> impress. Um, and you love that. And you, uh, you pride yourself on that. You might be fitter and stronger than other people in your gym or in your sporting team. You love that. You pride yourself on that. You might have more social media followers or likes on your profile page or whatever. And you love that. And you pride yourself on that. See, we all do this. Like, no matter who you are, uh, any, like, there are areas in your life that you are going to struggle to increase your favor in the eyes of those people around. There are places in your life where you define yourself as superior to other people around you and you strive to elevate yourself to that status and to maintain it. We all do this, okay? I'm not preaching to you from up here at you to change. I'm owning this in my own heart. Also, okay, I'm in there rowing in a different direction with you as well. We all, like Rachel, we love being seen as a favorite in our chosen field and we struggle and we strive to maintain this. But then what happens when we can't maintain this? Because this here comes like a really uncomfortable dislocation coming up because God cannot be followed when our self is taking that elevated position And all of our effort is being wasted in building ourselves up to it. Okay? So in the story of Rachel, how did this happen? How did did this happen? Let's let's jump in. We'll pick up reading in verse, sorry, start of chapter 30. Now, just sorry to pick us us up for the rest of uh, Genesis 29. The story so far is that Leah and Rachel have been given four baby boys. Okay? And with each birth, Leah has mourned and lamented the fact that she's not loved by Jacob, and she names each one sort of along those lines of what she's feeling. But she's got to the point where with her fourth, Judah is born, she's got to the point where she's purposed in her heart to praise the Lord. Okay? And we all know who came through the family line of Judah, don't we? It's Jesus. (laughs) Sunday school answer. Okay, so anyway, let's, let's pick up verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Whoa, hold up, drama queen. You'll die if you don't have kids? You'll die? This sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? Because it sounds strangely familiar to Jacob. Mate, I'm going to die if I don't get those, that bean stew from twin brother Esau, doesn't it? But the reason it sounds extreme here in Rachel's case is because it's showing the true colors of someone who is seeing something they value slipping from them and they're not okay with it. Here it's for Rachel, okay? She's the beautiful, loved wife who, when she sees her older sister, who she has had one up on her whole life, gaining somewhat of an upper hand, more children, more sons for Jacob. This is what she sees and she's not cool with it. Rachel loves being the favorite. She wants to maintain this favorite status. But will that begin to change as she gets older and her beautiful looks fade, her body changes? Will that remain will she remain the favorite? What's she banking her favoritism on? <coughs> See her her She's, she's enthroned. She's put herself up on this little throne and sort of she knows it's in Jacob. She's a favorite in Jacob's life. She's a favorite in her dad's life. She's, she's there. She's put herself on the throne. She's wearing a crown. And when this crown has started to slip, it's exposed envy and jealousy. 
See, Rachel, for possibly the first time in her life, she is envious of her sister, Leah. In her mind, in her mind, she's meant to receive the favour. In her mind, God's meant to give her the kids. In her mind, her sister is meant to play second fiddle to her. In, In her mind, life's not meant to go this way. In her mind. And so out of her envy and her desire to cling to her favoured status, she falls into doing the disgusting thing that the cultures around were doing by using her handmaid to make kids. Exactly the thing, same thing that Sarah did with Hagar. Okay? She gives her handmaid to Jacob to get pregnant so she can take the baby as her own. She tries to hold on to her crown that is slipping through using another person for her own gain. Right? So she gets a couple of sons out of Bilhah and then she's got the gall and the, oh, whatever to call victory and time on her sister in verse 8 when she says, um, then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. What? Rachel, you haven't haven't won anything. This is delusional to think that two sons from your handmaid are equivalent to or or beating your sister's natural four, of whom Reuben's the oldest, Jacob's birthright's naturally going to flow to him. Where are you getting this idea? Rachel's starting to unhinge a bit in her desire to keep up her favoured status over Leah. Rachel begins this kind of like, I was talking to Tim about this through the week because we were sort of conferring and talking about, uh, because he's doing Leah. Rachel begins kind of this baby arms race, okay, to remain the favourite. It's bizarre. But then the obvious flow-on thing happens here because Leah, she grabs Zilpah, she grabs her handmaid, throws her at Jacob and says, well, you can get me some more too. So Leah gets another couple out of her as well. So she's triggered this wrong way of thinking in her sister as well. And then that really strange, weird story of the mandrakes happens. Like, anyway, where Reuben's out getting mandrakes for his mum, Leah, like mandrakes are this plant that was probably like an aphrodisiac or like a, like a fertility enhancer back in the day. Um, and so he's collecting these in the field and, and for Leah, and then Rachel sees them and she's just like, whoa, well, I can't have Leah getting that. Um, I, I need that. I, like, I need those mandrakes. Um, um, you can, I'll, okay, I'll swap you a night for, with Jacob for those mandrakes. So, okay, Leah's like, no worries, we'll do that. So, uh, Rachel is just, she loses the plot here because she's there probably at home scoffing this mandrake stew or whatever she's made. Meanwhile, Jacob is with Leah and this backfires spectacularly in Rachel's face when Leah gets pregnant again and births a boy. She gets pregnant again and births another boy. She gets pregnant again and births a girl, finally a pink one, okay? (laughs) How does Rachel feel now? How? How does Rachel feel now? If she's keeping score, she's been absolutely belted out of the park, hasn't she? Any hope of salvaging a draw, let alone a win, she's gone right out the window. She's thrashed at this point, scoring game, trounced, whatever. Add your, add your descriptive word in for a complete flogging, pizzling. 
she's run low into the point where God has made clear to her that her thinking of herself too highly, so elevated, elevating herself above her sister was wrong. Using the handmaid's bodies to make children was wrong. You can almost imagine... You could almost imagine God saying to Rachel, Rachel, you've destroyed relationships in this family. You've wound it up with so much tension in here because of your desire to hold on to your favorite position at the top. You love being the favorite so much that it's becoming a problem. So I pulled it away from you a little bit and you struggled and strived to get it back. So I pulled it away from you a little bit further and you struggled and strived and kept wrestling with it to get this back. Do you see your problem? Do you see your problem? I love you, Rachel. You can't do this in your own strength, but trust me. Just give up, submit to me, put me first, not yourself. So while we are tethered to Rachel, let's pivot ourselves a little bit. How does this look for us? Do we want to look at it? Is this uncomfortable? What does this mean for us? Now, search this out with the Lord because I don't want to override anything that, um, you know, he might be telling you. (coughs) But consider this. Is it possible that some hardships in your life, I'm not saying all, but is it possible that some, you know, whether they're pop tips like Jacob or they're money worries or career failures or, you know, friendship fallouts, Is it possible they're there because you valued those things too highly? Because you loved them too much and you desired them too much and you struggled and strived at the cost of other things to gain those things? Is it possible? Did did those things when they were pulled back a little way from you, when you went through these trials, did expose envy and jealousy of others in your heart? Did you feel that? Is it possible? Is it possible that these things, when they were pulled back, it exposed a real wrong priority of God in your life? See, to understand and love God more fully, we've got to get rid of ourselves from our own view and rid of ourselves out of our own focus, all right? And we've got to focus fully on him, fully on God, if we're to follow him fully. It's like we can't drive down the road while we've got pictures of ourselves all stuck up in the windscreen. We're going to crash and burn. It's going to be terrible. See, Rachel, in her struggling to remain the favorite, she's striving to remain more important and more higher class than her sister. She runs her ship aground on the rock, the solid bedrock of God who doesn't show partiality, who doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't play favorites. We all, we all find equal and ample and over and abundant love in this God, regardless of who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you or whatever. God loves you and he wants you in close, like really close relationship with him. That's all he wants. 
So, Rachel met a God who loved her for who she was, over and abundantly. She met a God who loved Leah, who she was, over and abundantly. She met a God who loved Jacob, over and abundantly, for who he was. So to answer our question from earlier, who did God love most, Rachel or Leah? Yes. Yes. He loved them both over and abundantly and gave both on their different blessings for their own unique journeys. So Rachel perceived Leah's as hers. And she wasn't meant to go that way. The Bible's very clear that God shows no partiality. He doesn't play favourites. Every person's responsible for their own attitude towards God. See, in the book of James, let's jump over there, James chapter 2. The book of James, we as followers of Christ, we are called to reflect this lack of favouritism also. Let's read chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you uh, stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? See, this coming kingdom that Jesus spoke so much about is just the complete upside down of the world's priorities. In it, Jesus said that the least will be the greatest. So this kingdom is coming Despite all your efforts to remain on trend, to remain cool, to remain have the appearances, to kept up to your friends around, to remain a better friend than other people in your circle, to be seen as having it all together in your social circles, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter to God. He loves you whatever and wherever you are. So don't burn yourself on like into the ground and destroy everything around you, scrabbling and clinging to try and hold on to this favourite little crown. Desperately trying to remain favourite like Rachel did. Don't do that. God loves you despite your failings, despite your bad breath, despite your mountains of debt, you know, despite your ugly looks. Your old clothes, despite your your sexuality, despite your broken marriage, or whatever. Okay? Give yourself a break. Come to the cross of Jesus, lay it down. That's such a Christian cliche thing. Do we even really understand what that means? Lay your burdens down. Think about that through the week, maybe. Anyway, come and lay it down and just let yourself fall into the love of our great God. Give up that favorite position. Give it up. doesn't matter. Take that least servant position, the one that Jesus says was going to be the greatest. And just let God handle the rest. Yeah? He loves you as you are when you come to him. doesn't matter. He loves you dearly. He loves you forever. So come to him. 
come to him. So come, let's have communion, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray for this. Lord, we thank you that you love us, whoever we are, wherever we are. Help us to cut ourselves out of our view, Lord, as we come now to remember you dying on a cross. As we come to remember what you did because you love us so much and how you see us and how much you want us. Thank you so much for this. We're nothing without you, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord. Make us truly thankful. Amen.